love has done its part And let him reign in my life and my heart If love has done its part Welcome to Healing Hidden Wounds Radio, sponsored by Shadow of His Wings Ministry. We are glad you are listening today and hope you find words of healing, insight, and restoration. Shadow of His Wings Ministry was founded by Lee and Shay Preston and born out of God's vision for setting captives free. If you would like to support us in the work we do, please visit www.shadowofhiswingsministry.com to donate. Today on Healing Hidden Wounds, Lee is talking with Jonathan Darty, director of Be Broken Ministries. Let's listen in as Lee and Jonathan discuss the ins and outs of recovery from sexual brokenness. jump into a topic today that is applicable to anybody who has ever struggled with any form of sexual addiction, whether it's been heterosexual or homosexual or any other kind of um, sexually addictive behavior, there are these things that we tend to call secondary symptoms. We often think of the primary symptoms, which are the behaviors that a person then gets involved in, whatever form of sexual acting out that is, but then there seem to be these other things that tend to linger. It's like even after your behavior may start getting cleaned up, there seems to be some, I don't know, additional brokenness, or we could even say dysfunction or or something that's still sort of out of whack that is what we're calling these secondary symptoms. And, Lee, what are the two primary ones that you wanted to address today with our listeners? Well, I think, uh, as you said, Jonathan, I mean, I know this... Uh particular segment is usually dealing with same-sex attraction, but uh, I think for today this is something that is uh, certainly crucial for every man who's gone through any kind of sexual addiction to talk about, and that is just the general after-effects of of the actual acts of sexual addiction, which we call secondary symptoms. And the two uh, we're kind of looking at today specifically are anger and control, uh, because I think those are huge Once the sexual addict has kind of cleaned up some of his behaviors, those two things tend to creep up in a very powerful way. Yeah, and and how do they generally manifest themselves? I mean, how does a person then come to realize that there's a connection between what they were engaging in at, let's say, the height of their addictive behaviors and then these now secondary symptoms that tend to linger? Or do they... Do they need somebody else to sort of help them make that connection? Or maybe just this broadcast will help them make that connection. I mean, because the reason I ask that is because it seems like we hear from a lot of couples especially. Let's say there's a married couple and the husband has been, you know, dealing with his primary symptoms of his sexual addiction, which is maybe his masturbation or his pornography or his affairs or whatever it may be. And then, you know, six months later or a year later, you may see these folks in your counseling office and he hasn't acted out in any of those primary ways for six months or nine months or 12 months. And yet there's still not much healing going on in the relationship. He's still not, he's still not really actually that different from when he first might've stepped in your office when he was engaging in all of the addictive behaviors. Absolutely. And Usually, this kind of comes around, as you said. I mean, it usually comes around towards the middle of counseling 
doesn't have to be with the in counseling. It can be somebody else who notices it. Certainly a wife will notice it. And what she generally notices is, and this is for guys who struggle with same-sex attraction, they sometimes have to just hear it from people who notice that they just get angry a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually it comes around when a wife starts to say, okay, now my husband tells me that he doesn't do these things anymore, so why do we feel so distant still? And why is he still, why do we all, why do the kids and I still feel afraid sometimes when he gets Like in walking on eggshells kind of a thing, yeah. And, and, and that's really, you know, um, that's probably a good indicator for anybody who's listening is, has, has anything changed necessarily in the dynamic of your relationship? Has anything improved of, of any of your relationships? Or has sort of the fundamental connection that you've had with people sort of stayed the same? That might be an indicator of whether or not any of these secondary symptoms have been dealt with or even addressed. Right. Because usually the core of this has not been addressed, which is the core of, of the sexual addiction itself, which is self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that place where... Nobody tells me how to do my life. I've already been doing it this way since I was 10, you know. Um, I don't have to deal with my emotions. If somebody in my family makes me upset, we all, usually most sex addicts come from this kind of family anyway. We don't deal with our emotions here. So I already know if I'm upset, i got to deal with it on my own. So in a self-centered fashion, I go take care of myself. And there's almost this entitlement thing that comes next, which says, well, I've always had to take care of myself. So what, you're going to start wanting me to share with you now how I take care of myself? And now you're going to want me to stop being angry and using anger and control to get my way when I've never had to really stop doing that before. And you know what, as you're saying that, I'm thinking we may actually have this backwards. You know, we're talking about these things as if they're secondary symptoms, but when you actually look at it, these are the primary core issues that have to be dealt with in terms of the fundamental self-centeredness that is part of what drives the whole paradigm of a sexual addiction. And so we may have it backwards. Really, the, the pornography and the masturbation and the affairs and all those behaviors may be in reality the secondary symptoms. Absolutely. And the reality is, is the primary issues are this issues of anger and control and whatever else is being, um, whatever else is directly attached to that self-centered paradigm. Sure. Well, and maybe that's why they're secondary, because they only show up after the guy doesn't have any way to cope with them anymore, which is what he's always done before, you know. So you almost have to clear the behaviors out of the way long enough to be able to then see behind that and say, oh, there's other things that are are in behind whatever those behaviors, because the behaviors really do end up masking what is at the heart level of what's going on in an addiction. Absolutely. And I, I think it's something I've always kind of looked at it as, is kind of the the sexual addict's fog. You know, it's that fog that a guy lives in. I mean, I remember being there. I didn't have trouble with mm-hmm. my anger when I had my sexual addiction to rely on. So, you know what, if somebody didn't do something I wanted or if I didn't get my way or something didn't go the way I wanted it to, I could always turn to my sexual addiction, and then who cared? At that point, right. it was like, okay, I don't really care how this turns out. I'm already making myself feel better, and... Uh, so once you get rid of that and get out of the fog, then you really do have to deal with how you really feel. And dealing with how you really feel ends up helping you see that, man, I've always, I don't know how to control life and I, I've got to make sure I control it. But the irony there is, you know, you talk about not really having to deal with it when you're in, in your addiction. The irony, though, is that, um, I don't know about you, but in my fog, in my addictive fog, I was constantly irritated, constantly frustrated. Sure. The 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 behavior simply 
allow me to be distracted and avoid the that irritation at least sure. for a moment but it seemed like when i was unwilling to feel unwilling to engage those emotions of anger and how to deal with control and all that kind of stuff they were perpetual but then when you move you remove some of the behaviors and you start dealing with the anger and the control ironically there's a piece that comes to that it's not perpetual irritation and perpetual you realize that those emotions are a natural ebb and flow in life, and I mean, they're part of living life. But it's interesting. It's almost like until you get to a place where the behaviors are sort of cleared out of the way and you engage that, you're actually remaining in a perpetual state of sort of anger and control and manipulation. Sure, sure. It's just you're not as aware of it because you're totally distracted with your behaviors. <laughs> right, and you don't feel it. You know, right, It's like right. you may feel the irritability, but you just think it's everything around you or that you have Somebody else's fault. Or, That's yeah. right. So it's almost that self-blame, I mean, not that self-blame, but that blaming others kind of thing comes in. It's like, oh, well, it's their fault I feel this way, so I have to go do something to make myself feel better. Well, let's talk about some of the, the foundational elements of how a person then builds this anger and control. I mean, how does a person get so sort of wrapped around the axle with, with things like anger and control? If they're so central and fundamental to uh, sort of the building and the perpetuation of a sexual addiction, how do how do they generally originate? How does a person generally get to a place where they think they must be in control and they think that if they don't get everything that they want, they have a right to be angry? Well, I think, in my opinion, the core for, for any of these secondary symptoms is really fear. You know, if you look at it, all these little boys that we work with, including ourselves, you know, as a kid, most of the time... Uh, they didn't really get their emotional needs met. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they come home from a bad day at school, and mom says, oh, run along and play. I'm too busy getting dinner ready right now. So she's emotionally unavailable. Uh, dad's sitting in his chair reading a newspaper, and so he runs to his dad, and dad says, you know, go and play because I'm busy. I'm reading the newspaper right now. And so he never really gets his emotional needs addressed. And so what ends up happening is or sometimes you know I want to talk about with same sex guys you know sometimes maybe mom tried to address it but she overly addressed it she addressed it in a way that was smothering and and mm -hmm. he couldn't figure out what to do with that but ultimately regardless the emotional needs aren't really met very well and so he goes to his room wondering okay what do I do with these feelings now and the one is is okay I don't know what to do with it so it begins to spin out of control he tries to figure out ways to get his needs met and then slowly but surely he finds porn, masturbation, fantasy, whatever comes up next, which says, hey, this is a great way to meet my needs. Yet internally, the needs never really get met. You know, the emotional needs never get met. And so he lives in kind of this perpetual state of fear and upset because he's like, I don't know how to handle life. And so what do I do with that? Well, I have to have absolute control then over how to deal with my life, how to make things happen the way I want them to happen. And if they don't, then I seethe inside, I grow a lot of bitterness and resentment and all these things that grow inside of us when we don't deal with our emotions properly to the point where he doesn't really care at that point. He's got all this junk inside of him, but he's using all kinds of outward behaviors to try to cover it all up. And I think you see this also with uh, anybody who's come from any history of abuse. Absolutely. I mean, that's why th there's, a, there's a large, large percentage of those who end up developing a sexual addiction who come from a history of some sort of trauma or abuse, whether it's physical, or emotional, sexual, or whatever. And you can see why that would be the case. I mean, in the example you're giving, there, 
there's definitely a form of woundedness that comes from that because sure. there's emotional abandonment or just these these really significant emotional needs are not getting met. You take that down the road a little further, and there's the extreme of then there being uh, some sort of aggressive, uh, uh, overt type of of woundedness that's perpetuated on a child, and then you can see how the same result would occur. I I, I obviously am going to have to take care of myself because. You know, if somebody's hitting me or somebody's sexually molesting me, sure. they're not taking care of me. They're using me. Right. And so that's often why those who come from a background of abuse then gain a high sense of control in adulthood because they're going to say, hey, listen, obviously nobody else will take care of me. I've got to take care of myself. And that means, um, you know, usually that then uh, turns into a form of manipulation in relationships because they've got to be the one in control because, listen, when you're abused, you're out of control. You don't have sure. any sense of stability or balance or anything. And so, and and what is the significance then of these early shaping influences of then a person getting to a place where they feel like, I must control my own life. I must be in control. Otherwise, I'm going to get hurt. Otherwise, I can't actually have my needs met. What is the significance of those early shaping um environments to what that produces later on in a person's life well it's huge because you know usually even in the home there's a lot of control and so he begins to view life as being whoever whomever happens to be Mm -hmm. in control at that moment you know if uh if dad controls the minute he walks in the door by everybody starts scurrying trying to get dinner ready because dad's going to get mad if something doesn't happen exactly the way he's wanting it then the boy learns almost the kick the dog syndrome. You know, well, dad's got this control, but I can control pieces of my life. You know, it's uh, perfectionism, I think, and performance gets mixed up in control, too, because a parent who's in great control certainly wants her, his, ch- her, his children to perform well. You better perform well. And if you don't, then there is either withdrawing of love or there's a conditional love that says we only love you and you do well. And so then that whole fear aspect comes in there. It's like, okay, so now I know I have to perform here. My secret addiction over here, I don't have to perform all that well. I can do exactly what I want over here, so I'm free there. But so there's really no love there. There's just performance. It's it, There could be some love there. I mean, I'm not saying every parent who falls into that doesn't love their kids. I'm mm-hmm. saying they just happen to love conditionally. It happens that... All this stuff the kid starts to feel, and he doesn't really know what to do with all those things. And so he learns that being in control and doing things the right way are more important than love. And I think we need to uh, we we need to also be clear here that um, every parent is imperfect. That's right. <laughs> and so you know I can already hear the perfect or see the perfectionistic parents out there that are that they may be connecting on some level with what you're saying and then all of a sudden they're just they're hit by a wave of shame of on their own to say sure. I, I i don't measure up. and and so you know everybody take a deep breath the reality is is broken people produce broken kids right and so we're not necessarily saying here that okay everything is on the parent's shoulders for how this child then turned out in adulthood eventually when a child becomes an adult there is a point at which they must grapple with their own sense of control and perfectionism and all the brokenness that's part of who they are, regardless of their background, they've got to sort of own up as an adult. So we're not trying to 
you know, blame parents then for how a child can develop these these symptoms of of control and anger. Right. Well, but these are act- factors that are very important, and they're they're right. part of that. And that's actually what we're really trying to hone in on. Is that's exactly if a parent's feeling that right now, that's what we're trying to say. Is hey, you weren't meant to be perfect, mm-hmm. and guess what? You're not meant to have perfect kids either. And so sometimes that's where the pain comes from. Is if I don't appear perfect then I've somehow failed my kids. And so I run circles trying to make sure my kids appear perfect, which ends up leading them to feel like they can't ever meet the mark. And so then that's where their own fear and and, and lack of performance, I mean, their fear of failure comes in, right. and that's where all the controls start. And so we hope that at least by the end of this broadcast, you'll have a sense that you don't have to carry that around anymore. You don't have to carry the perfectionism. You don't have to carry the shame uh, you know, parents, but same is true for the one struggling with sexual addiction and who's been maybe in recovery for a while. And you, you've seen great improvement maybe with your behaviors sure. uh, getting under control, but you're realizing now I, I do have a lot of these underlying issues. Well, we don't want to heap any shame on you as well. I mean, listen, part of the process of healing and part of the process of, of true recovery from a sexual addiction is being free from shame. And realizing that every Absolutely. every step of the way along the process, it's about really more and more of our brokenness being exposed and the grace of God and the power of Christ being highlighted in whatever part of our brokenness is exposed. Sure. And guess what? I want everyone to hear that we're not coming at this as as experts. I'm coming at this as somebody who's Unless you say an with expert with, uh, with control and anger, then, That's right. then we're both experts exactly. on Exactly. <laughs> I've been an expert in control and anger and fear and performance right. and all those things. So it's really more just talking about, you know, the road to walk on because, you know, you, you sometimes feel like, wow, I've got this addiction licked. I'm good. I haven't acted out in a year. I haven't done anything wrong. I've been good. And yet you still feel like you're failing because people in your life, whether it's your wife or somebody else, is still saying, wow, you, you still don't care. You still don't seem to love me very much. You still you're don't still seem to detached come through. and avoidant and all this. Kind exactly. Of yeah. And so that's when it's like, wow, I'm failing. And it's like, guess what, guys, you're not failing. You're just in a place of still struggling with what we call now these secondary symptoms of, you know, you isolate because you can't perform well because you need to have control. And then you get angry when things feel out of control. Let's talk a little bit about what it takes to sort of break free from this, because one of the things that I think is such a challenge for folks who are coming out of a sexual addiction and dealing, then getting to a place where they recognize they've got to deal with these secondary symptoms of control and anger and shame and all those kind of things um, that are really at the core of a sexual addiction, it seems to me like a difficulty that some have is realizing that because God is relational, and that he's called us to relationship, and we're dealing with folks who have, uh, at best, been really unskilled at relationship. How does how then do they embrace this message that hey, guess what? You know, really the goal of your recovery is to learn how to really attach well, to learn how to relinquish control and allow the Holy Spirit to be in control of your life and and learn how to really give of yourself to uh, other people. And and how does that message, how can you possibly have that message break through to the heart of somebody who has gripped control? Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a death grip on control and that every little thing sets them off in anger. How on earth can a message of relational health and wholeness First of all, even be attractive to a person who's deeply entrenched in control thinking. 
Well, even as you're saying that, I'm wanting to run in the opposite direction <laughs> because I'm thinking, I don't know how you ever get there on your own uh, because I think control is so entrenched in just this belief that I cannot, I cannot make people happy. I cannot perform well enough, but I must try. And so if I can control my surroundings and everybody around me so well, then maybe they'll see me as somebody good. And the anger comes when no matter what you do, you cannot control enough to make somebody see you a way that you want them to see you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the hopelessness of that whole control and anger and, and performance-based kind of secondary symptoms is that you know, it's hard to even get there. It's almost like having to completely change a mindset of when I'm out of control, I'm actually better off. So let's back up a little bit because, I mean, I'm I'm sort of jumping all the way forward to the big picture. And I know that, you know, a few of our listeners probably just turn the radio off. They're like, I don't want to go there yet. That's right. <clears throat> so then what would be a first step to getting a person toward to thinking beyond this sense of I can only be safe when I'm in control a first step towards thinking, you know what, to really be surrendered to the Lord and engaged in a selfless relationship with another human being is where I, where true satisfaction and real contentment and real peace can come. What's a first step towards that person getting closer to that? I think one of the biggest uh, is what makes me the most angry and where do I tend to feel the most safety when I'm in complete control? You know, where do where do my the hairs on the back of my neck begin to stand up in anger. You know, is it when I feel like someone is not doing what I want them to do? Is it when I feel like something has to be done a certain way and I don't get my way in that? Um, With control, it's what are those things that I have to have to feel safe? Meaning, do I need the house to be always in perfect shape to be safe? Do I have to have... You had to go there, didn't you? (laughs) Only because I've been there, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think we all have to look at, you know, uh, does my wife have to dress a certain way for me to feel safe? Because then I feel like she's, a, a, you know, she affirms who I am by how she looks, you know. Uh, I think control is, as you begin to just kind of say, okay, God, maybe I do kind of bristle when I don't get things that I really feel like I have to have. And so what do I do with that? And can you begin to show me those things? You know, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, do I feel like I have some sort of entitlement to run that person off the road or to track them down and make them see what they've done to me? Because those kinds of things are just control issues. That's me saying, guess what? I am in control. You don't get to do that to me. And I would say, too, I think that one of the major things to do is when you're starting to to do this sort of self-examination and allow God to really search you and show you where you um, tend to grip the tightest in control and where you tend to get the most irritable and frustrated is whenever those things are revealed and whenever you realize what they are, I think the key is then to deal with them in the context of relationship. Excuse me. I think that what we tend to do is because control and anger often are... um, they grow really when we're in isolation. Sure. That's, that's why the addiction was so appealing to us is because, hey, I could isolate and detach and go do my thing and feel better in the moment when I'm acting out in a certain way. When you remove those behaviors, it's almost like the frustration intensifies because you're not Most going definitely. to those behaviors, but you're then trying to grip even tighter in control. And so 
that still leads to isolation and disconnection. And so I think when whenever you're taking those first steps towards, okay, what are the areas in which I've just tried to grip so tightly and be in control? And when you start to loosen that grip, don't try to loosen the grip alone. Right. It's really important, whether it be a counselor or with your spouse or with a friend or pastor or whatever, try to work through and talk through those things and even even be as brutally honest as you must be about how that's making you feel. Because that's a whole new territory. Part of this is control masks feelings. Control says, if I can just make the surface and the appearance and everything look exactly the way I want, I'll be at peace. When on the inside, man, you're just churning all up. And that's why I think control and anger go hand in hand. Sure. The more you control, the more your frustration is because you realize you can't control everything in your life. And you can't control another human being. And you can't control circumstance. And guess what? You're not even going to be able to control who hurts you next. Right. Because your wife might reject you at some point. Mm -hmm. Or somebody significant in your life might not show up for a breakfast or lunch meeting or may may not call you and you may feel rejected and so you've got this anger inside over i mean actually it's this hurt that you're responding with an anger and you just want it to stop so i'm going to use all my anger to yell and scream at my wife and say stop hurting me but you're you're really you know you're not really saying that on the outside you're just saying i don't want you to do this to me anymore and i'm going to control it so i don't have to get hurt and that's where some of those secondary symptoms really creep in and so I think breaking that cycle is really going to be, like you said, the first step is just being willing to recognize it, being really willing to acknowledge this is where I have gripped so tightly. These are the things that frustrate me the most. And then just start to engage in honest dialogue, not in a, not in a, a defensive posture, not in an argumentative posture, but just say, you know, this is where I'm at. And, and the good news is I really believe that God will bring those safe people in your life, whether it be a counselor I think, you know, obviously God wants you to deal with this with your spouse, but a pastor, a friend, somebody sure. that you can say, I'm really wanting to deal with some of these secondary symptoms in my life. And I know I've got issues with control and with anger, and I'm starting to recognize where some of those are. And I need to just sort of unload some of those feelings in order to be able to get to a place where I'm more dependent upon the Holy Spirit in how I live. And I'm able to let let my emotions be expressed in healthy ways so that the relationships can draw closer rather than me continuing to draw farther and farther apart through the anger and control. Right. And remembering that it takes pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, this is a painful process because mm-hmm. you're used to getting your me- your needs met and you're used to getting your way by being angry and being controlling so that everybody kind of just goes along with you. And that hurts when you start to break that pattern. The good news is, though, with God, whatever pain is part of the healing process is is for that purpose. It's for healing. And so that's the good news. We are glad you joined us today, and we hope that God had a special word just for you. Remember that Healing Hidden Wounds and Shadow of His Wings Ministry are listener-supported, and all services are provided on a donation basis. If you heard something today that was especially important to you, we hope you will consider donating a gift. Please visit www.healinghiddenwounds.com to donate today. Now let it rain in my life and my heart. Your love has done its part. Now let it rain.